0: Welcome to The Fabulous 413, I'm Khalee Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we'll head back to Amherst College to chat with Professor Ilan Stavans about Point Counterpoint, a speaker series examining the evolution and use of American English and how that shapes not just American culture, but global culture as well. Plus, A
1: Taste of the Islands gets a new home in Pittsfield when we head to BB's hotspot to talk with Ronnie Brezan about his journey in bringing Caribbean flavors to the Berkshires.
0: But first, there is now a corporation on the moon.
1: Didn't Gil Scott heron warn us about this?
0: Yes. Yes, he did. And so, too, does Mr. Universe. To boldly go where no man has gone before. After called astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe, at your kitchen table here in Amherst for some kitchen table astronomy. We landed on the moon.
2: Yes. No way. That's great. We landed on the moon. Uh, I I would say we limped our way to the moon. We trip landed on the moon. (laughs) That that is correct. And and by we, we mean uh, the US landed on the moon for the first time in 50 years, uh, roughly in 50 years. Uh, Last time was Apollo 17 in 1972. And this time, uh, it's a private company, Intuitive Machines, that landed a spacecraft on the moon. Maybe not
0: too intuitive because it ran into some problems, which I'm sure we'll get to. But
2: yeah, so so this is one of those things where it reminds you how difficult it is to still land on the moon. People go like, "Oh, you've landed on the." How hard would it be? Well, it's still very hard, and. There was a Russian mission that failed uh, more recently, Uh, the Japanese mission that tilted on the side as well. Uh, There was uh, an Israeli mission that had failed a while back, Uh, but there have been some successful landings as well. Uh, Indian mission, Chandrayaan, that landed last year, Uh, and Chinese missions have been uh, very successful. And so it just tells you the record is roughly, I think, 50-50 in terms of what you land. So you cannot yet want to send humans there with a 50-50 chance. Hey, you're going to make it or you may not.
0: Well, and- why is it 50-50 when we did it,
2: allegedly, so many times <laughs> in, the, in the Apollo program? Well, first of all, it's a newer systems that they are using. And secondly, even with the Apollo program, the first Apollo 11 landing actually was tricky because you have boulders over there, you have terrain over there, you have craters. And so you really have to figure out how are you going to maneuver At a place, by the way, which doesn't have any atmosphere either. Mm. So when you are going down, you are really maneuvering without an atmosphere, using your burns for the rockets over there. And Neil Armstrong famously, right towards the end, they were thinking about aborting that particular landing because they had gone a little bit off course. And uh, then he took over manually and landed uh, that particular one. So there is a lot of effort. How do you automate so meaning to say rather than controlling it from the earth because it still takes a little bit of time to get the uh, like what you are seeing and to react to that can there be a way that the spacecraft itself judges where you are going and what is the best place because as you are coming down you have to really figure out hey there is a little rock that you may actually land on it and you may tip over for example In this particular case, the one intuitive machines one, they had a basically a type of a radar that actually maps out how far away you are from the surface. That's an important component. But right towards the end, they found out actually a day before or or even less than that, that that wasn't functioning. And so they actually were really worried about how they are going to do the landing. But the spacecraft was also carrying some payload, including six experiments from NASA, or six instruments. And one of them was an experimental thing to actually do this type of measuring the terrain and stuff like that. So actually, they used the payload that was on the spacecraft. They had to switch it on and use that. They actually extended the landing, I think, two hours. There was a two-hour delay because in order to do that, This is where some of the cool stuff comes in. (laughs) They actually had to upload a new software patch because now they were using a different one to land. And so on the one hand, you go like, hey, the the other thing didn't work. I mean, they forgot to switch it on. Apparently some safety switch was on for the original laser for, for the distance measurement stuff. But the one they ended up using, they were like, hey, we have that. But then they had to send a software update. And in order to do that, Apparently, uh, it it took some time to figure that out. But they ultimately did. I I was watching it live stream for that. I mean, in some ways, it's a little anticlimactic because you're, you're not seeing like the live feed from the spacecraft. You are seeing people seeing the instruments of what's happening. And it was like, okay, well, they've landed. And now they go like, okay, now we have to wait until the spacecraft sends you back a signal. And here there was a delay and it was a longer delay than they expected. And, and then finally it came in and it was like, oh, it's a little bit of a weaker signal, but okay, we have landed and then everybody had to clap and things it's like that. It's always fun to watch those nerds in, in like mission control clapping when something lands.
0: I love it, I get all emotional. Today
3: for the first time in more than a half century, the U.S. has returned to the moon. Yeah!
2: Today for the first time, Uh, Absolutely. And so it turns out what happened in this particular case is that this uh, lander Odysseus, it's actually pretty big. It's 14 foot tall. And I should mention one other thing regarding this is that this is also a landing close to the lunar South Pole. This is the farthest uh, landing in the South Pole that humans have ever done So this is, again, tricky. And the reason why we are going to the South Pole is because that's where there are these permanently shadowed regions, meaning to say there are places where the sun doesn't shine. (laughs) No, not that. (laughs) But this is where there is uh, water ice. And so uh, both the American-led Artemis Alliance and the Chinese-led Alliance uh, are both planning on having uh, a permanent base in the lunar south pole and so in order to have a base first you have to land there but the lander itself is like 14 foot tall so we're talking about a big lander Mm -hmm. adhesius and it turns out it has six legs and they think what happened was one of the legs got tripped over while coming down and that's why it fell on its side it's still working
0: but it's lying on its side on
2: the moon. A little bit, yes. They are still figuring out uh, information, more, more information about it. Its solar panels are still working, all that other it's good stuff. It's all charged up. It's yeah, like it's if you just lying, a... It's just
0: lying on its side. It's it, relaxing on the moon.
2: Yeah. I mean, like, you know, it, it's, it's like it's, it, its cell phone is still working because, <laughs> hey, that's all charged up. It's a little <laughs> sideways. Interestingly, they did have another payload. It was called Eagle Cam. This was designed by students at uh, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And originally the plan was that as the spacecraft uh, Odysseus is, the lander is coming down, it would actually spit out this Eagle cam and it's going to go out of the spacecraft and then watch, take pictures of the landing. That's cool. And that's what everybody was expecting. That would be really cool. But because of all these navigational problems, they actually didn't take it out. So that's the one of the reasons why we don't have amazing pictures off the surface uh, other than i think they released one picture but we don't have more pictures from it however they do think that they are going to actually still uh, get the eagle cam out and then we will have some pictures from the ground we're gonna have pictures of odysseus lying on its side on the moon which
0: would be fun montague community television used to have an eagle cam that was a camera in a bald eagle's nest on oh, yeah. Barton cove and you could watch on mctv what the eagles were up to. And sometimes they'd like bring a cat into the nest and they were like, we got to shut this camera down. Not a cat. Yes. (laughs) Eagles will eat anything. (laughs) So people were like a little bit freaked out by
3: it. Today, the very fiber of our industrialization is under attack from a small subversive group of
2: Namby-pamby conservationists,
0: and then there was some destruction. that I think a storm took down the eagle camp, but that's a different type of. Eagle camp.
2: <laughs> okay, all right. Equally and, is cool, and UMass has one too, right up on top. Oh, yeah, of yeah, because the there's a falcon The falcon, yeah, falcon camp, yeah. yeah. God
0: rest the uh, the owl of oh, New yes, York City it's... that
2: passed away too. People love that owl. Uh, that is correct, yeah. and, uh, and and sad because it, the way it passed away. I mean, like you know, you go owl passes away. That's fine. Yeah, but it. Hit a building, so yeah, right. that glass it choked on the Tootsie
0: it. Roll center of a Tootsie Pop. One,
2: two,
3: three, three.
0: <laughs> you remember that commercial? <laughs> no.
2: Anyway, anyway. Uh, so again, couple of things regarding that: uh, the spacecraft is going to be, even though it's charged. It still has about roughly two weeks, less than that, about 10 or 11 days until the nighttime starts over there. And when it's night, it's very cold and the equipment is not designed to work in those conditions. So they will have to do all the science in the next 10, 12 days. So there you have it. But this is just the beginning uh, because just recently, last month, one of the missions failed. That's the astrobotics uh, that was going over there. And that was another
0: private private partnership with
2: nasa right and then the japanese mission which was called slim the explicit purpose for that was to make an accurate landing and they actually did end up even though it's on the side but it turns out that it actually landed within a football field range which actually is amazing because again if you are planning on sending humans or others your landing has to be really accurate or if you are sending material cargo for astronauts or for the base it has to be really accurate and so a slim spacecraft for japan that actually worked it pretty accurately and now you are going to have a lot more missions there is a chinese mission Chang'e 6 and that's a really exciting mission because china is the only country to have made soft landing with a rover on the far side of the moon and now they are planning on returning samples from the far side We've never had samples from there. This would be incredible. And as you can imagine, far side, because that's the side which Earth never sees, Uh, that is hard because you cannot communicate directly from Earth, but instead you need actually a relay station in order to communicate from the far side. And China was successful before, and with Chang'e 6 mission, that is what they are hoping to not only be there, but then the spacecraft is going to launch from the far side and then come back to Earth. Wow! And Intuitive Machines, I think, has one more mission planned this year. So there's a lot of stuff that will be happening. And from astronomy perspective, I should mention that this particular Intuitive Machines mission also include a couple of astronomy things, because the far side of the moon in particular would be great for radio astronomy, for example. So so there is an instrument that actually looks for what kind of interference you might be seeing for example from solar particles how much interference you would get for radio astronomy and things like that so moon can open up new kinds of avenues so even though and i've we've talked about it we have a lot of reservations about the pure commercial nature of that uh nevertheless you also have benefits in particular for the type of astronomy, the type of science you can do from the moon, which you cannot do from other places. And in fact, there is already uh, some conversation about how to protect the moon for science purposes. That if you have construction or if you have other things going on, is it going to disrupt the potential for using moon for astronomy, including the problem that we are facing here on Earth, and that is all these satellites here on Earth same thing is going to start happening on the moon as well. So astronomers are being a little bit more proactive about that.
0: All of this public-private partnership with NASA, all of this with the Chinese, all of this with the Japanese and Indian as well, all
2: leading up to permanent bases on the moon. Yes. And Artemis program, this is the American Alliance, they are planning on sending humans back. I mean, I think the humans with an orbital program or, or a mission, that is, I think, in the next year or so. They thought of 24, but that has been postponed, I think, at least to 25, if not 26. And then after that, the third one is supposed to expect it to get down on the moon, on the surface of the moon in the lunar South Pole. And so is the Chinese. They are planning on having other missions to the moon, to get more information about it they're going to be going to the south pole as well but ultimately there are plans to land taikonauts so those are the chinese astronauts before 2030 or around 2030
0: does this all feel like hollywood and how we just like to remake movies like we already did this <laughs> 50 years ago when we landed people on the moon why why is this exciting why is this something we should be pursuing well like, i know dune was great with david lynch but maybe it maybe this dune <laughs> And, and we are That's going to talk take. about
2: that are we are going to talk about next week. We got to oh, talk about Dune. I'm yeah. excited about Dune.
3: I must not fear. Fear
2: is the mind killer. But uh, well there are a couple of things. First of all the first time humans went to the moon there wasn't much scientific motivation for that or even commercial motivation for that it was really driven by the Cold War. Listen to the Moonrise podcast from the Washington Post. Unbelievable excellent podcast. Really fantastic, and and so it was. Re- so it was really driven by that. And now there are other reasons why humans are going. The reason why we are going back now, there are potentials. Again, as I mentioned, from purely science perspective, also technology has gotten cheaper, so you can do a lot more stuff uh, on the moon. But also there are commercial interests, and this time it does look like that. The moon, it's not the destiny, final destination, but rather it is going to be a place with which humans can plan from trips to Mars and beyond. All of that said, it sounds that, well, inside of me is excited, but outside of me is also a little concerned about those things as well, because this type of return to the moon is being driven by commercial interests. And it may come as news, but the way capitalism uh, has worked here on Earth, the way we have really exploited the resources here on earth that really causes concern in terms of what kind of values we are going to bring to the moon and beyond. Because once you set up, I mean, this is a chance for humans to really set up perhaps that, hey, on the moon and for other heavenly bodies, we are going to bring new set of values, the values that don't prioritize profits, for example. And space offers that, the outer space treaty, the only treaty that governs the outer space and everybody signed on to it and everybody agrees to it, that is actually a very idealistic treaty. No nation can own a piece of the heavenly bodies and so on and so forth. And the plaque, the Apollo 11 plaque, and the later ones too, they talked about, we come in for all mankind. Yes, there are complications. This was driven by the Cold War, and we meant Americans come for all mankind, so on and so forth. But there is also a genuine humanistic element to it, which a lot of people subscribe to. A lot of people who are not Americans and who were not part of the Cold War in that context, they got really excited about that. And so there is this element that we can be better when it comes to space because you cannot see boundaries from space you cannot see borders from space now one thing that can severely undercut it and i would say two things one is commercial if you go like yeah we come in for money and so it's the gold rush that was again. again people use the language of the frontier and so it becomes the final frontier so that is one aspect of it and the second is militarization and i think That we have to be very careful about because slowly the low Earth orbit, because of space force and because of Chinese, because of Russians and so on and so forth, slowly those things are becoming a little less clear cut. And then you would have Moon basically become a suburb of the Earth in the space context. And so if you have military satellites here on Earth, you can imagine placing things on the Moon which are... Outer Space Treaty prohibits, for example, nuclear weapons and so on and so forth. Which Putin has tilted towards wanting to do. Right. And so did the U.S., you know, on the moon, at least like, you know, and and so I think those are things that we must push. We must push now. It is not about once there is a base, what's going to happen. It's about it right now. One of the payloads right now, the commercial payload, is about cloud computing, because they think that actually, uh, this is a private company that uh, has that on Odysseus, on the mission right now with intuitive machines, because they think that you can actually store information over there and that may be safer from hackers and so on and so forth on the moon. You can imagine some of these things being used by the military, which you won't even hear about, like, you know, so I think... I think we all have to really think about and get engaged with. I would, email, I would almost connect it with the environmental movement. Yes, environmental movement has been great, but it has been a little bit late. I think with space aspects, we have to get involved now. We have to shape what's going to happen rather than react to stop something from happening. I think we have to shape the way humans are going to behave on the moon and beyond.
1: Soon, we'll explore the bevy of native and non-native English-speaking authors participating in Point Counterpoint, a series that is taking a look at the many forms of English and how they shape not just our democracy,
0: but culture as a whole. But first, we'll head west to get a little sunshine on our plates during these dreary days at Beebe's Hotspot in Pittsfield. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. We are at... BB's Hot Spot, which is housed in a legendary Pittsfield location on North Street in Pittsfield, downtown Pittsfield. It's the home of the former Lantern restaurant. My name is Ronnie Brazan. Our director, Tony Dunn, is the one who tipped us off to your food, Ronnie, because They've been big fans before you opened this shop, and also you catered their baby shower. Is that true? Oh, yes, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> what, kind of food, what kind of food do you bring to a baby shower? Well, it's Caribbean food I do,
4: and that's what I like. So we introduce new flavors and new menu items. So we do, like, ribs, uh, jerk chicken meal, do oxtail, curry goat. They love the ginger beer, so
0: that's one of their favorite drinks, to uh-huh. homemade ginger beer. Another baby, Ryan, is addicted to Caribbean food and spices. And I don't know if that's true or not. But I mean, I, hopefully. I can, yeah, one can hope. Yeah. yeah. Get that stuff in utero. It's good for you. Yeah. Tell us about food trucks and Caribbean food here in Pittsfield prior to opening up this restaurant. Yeah, the food truck,
4: uh, that's where I started with after COVID, started with a mm-hmm. food truck. Then I moved to Columbus uh, Ave in Pittsfield. That's where the home for the food truck, where I do all the preps, the Mm -hmm. cleanup, and catering. Are you still running the food truck sometimes? It's seasonal, so it
0: does more in the summer, uh, because the winter is too rough. Yeah, yes. Yeah, nobody wants to eat outside on the street in the winter time. Tell us about your journey coming from the Caribbean. Where in the Caribbean? I'm from Grenada. Uh huh. Spice, the Isle of Spice. (laughs) (laughs) Dune comes out this week too.
1: (laughs)
4: Spice over
0: the surface. That's a planet of that's spice. That's planet of yeah. spice. <laughs> um, What brought you to the
4: Pittsfield area in the Berkshires? Well, basically my job, because I work at the Red Lion in Stockbridge, mm-hmm. and I've been there for 10 years. And after COVID, as I said, that's what transpired me to, to go out and start. Because the Red Lion, like
0: so many restaurants, shut down, laid people off, and then you yeah, had yeah, to yeah, regroup. Yeah. Is that it? That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. What kind of stuff were you making at the Red Lion Inn? Well, I was a server, basically, at the Red Lion Inn, ah. not a cook. But have you been cooking all, like, do you, in, Caribbean cooking is just why In you, the
4: Caribbean, I did, like, small restaurants or kitchens, mm-hmm. so I did that at the, in the Caribbean. Do you like front of house better
1: or back of house better?
4: I like it both, you know, because you get to meet the people, greet the people, and you get to prepare the food and give them a good experience, and they tell you about it. So it's a blend.
0: That's the kind of food truck thing, too, because you're, like, making it, you're right there, everything is kind of out in the open, and you're interacting with the clientele, which is great. We're here with Ronnie at BB's Hotspot in downtown Pittsfield. When did this take over the old lantern space?
4: Well, about uh, four weeks ago, so that's, like, uh, January... Oh, yeah. brand new! Yeah, brand, yeah. Brand, yeah. Brand, new. It's brand new. It's brand
0: new. Tell us about what this restaurant was and was like and what it meant to Pittsfield before you moved in? Well, I understand it was uh, like the best burger joints in Pittsfield. Uh So I tried to have some of the items
4: that uh, they used to carry like the burgers, the Reuben sandwich Uh and a nice twist
0: with the Caribbean flavors or meals. Uh So are you making like Caribbean influenced burgers or are you making the burgers like the Lantern used to make? Well, I have a
4: smash burger. That's one that we do. We make our burger from scratch. So it's not buying a frozen beef patty Mm -hmm. and we season it up and add some flavor and some love to it Mm -hmm. and serve it.
1: One thing that I was so happy to see on your menu that not everybody does, you have patties on cocoa bread. Like, I knew I was gonna have too much food, but I would I would have been fine if we'd shared it, but I couldn't talk them into it. Why have that and not just the patties themselves? I think it's a wholly different experience. If people aren't used to it, like, they're gonna look at it and go like, wait a minute, you have a whole pastry in this bread? No, it's like, it's worth it. It's such a good thing. Are they burger patties? No, like, Jamaican patties are a pastry. Okay. Like, so, like, you can get vegetarian ones, but it's usually like ground be- seasoned ground beef in pastry. In a
4: crust, yeah, you know? And uh, the butter, the bread is a. Buttery bread. Yeah. So when you put it, I just uh, used to sell it alone. Mm. But here, based on the spacing I have and the oven type of oven, I cannot do much. So mm. I just. Created a Baby's Delight, which is the beef patty inside of the cocoa bread, and it's served with French fries. So it's like a meal that
0: you can have some fries, have you know. You That's why we be- didn't get it because it was another meal on top of the meal. Uh,
1: there, it's the best.
0: Tell us about how you know right after the pandemic, the food trucks are out there, so people are getting exposed to this Caribbean food. Was there other Caribbean? food available in the area before you open those trucks? No, there's no Caribbean food available. Uh And also there's another
4: food truck which started, and we used to work at the same hotel together, Uh and he lost his job, so he started a Caribbean food truck too as well. So So we have both of us. Uh Whose is better?
0: No, I'm just kidding.
1: (laughs) Where are they from? Which which island are they from?
0: Uh, He's from the Virgin Islands. Mm -hmm. So how does this Grenadine food, yeah, like food, how does it differ from the other Caribbean food trucks? or is it pretty much the same?
4: It's more the same. On the food truck, I kind of limited the menu. So I do things like a jerk chicken sandwich, a Mm -hmm. jerk chicken quesadilla. Mm -hmm. Because of space, I cannot do a full run of the menu. So I select a few items Mm -hmm. and make it easy for people to eat while outside, you know?
1: Are you looking forward to, in brick and mortar, being able to do specials so that people get a deeper taste of where you're from?
4: Yes, exactly. So, and, and also a blend, not just where I'm from, but introduce different
0: dishes from different islands. Yeah, like yeah. What, what do you got on your mind that you might bring from where? Well,
4: I did the Rasta pasta. That's mainly a Jamaican uh, dishes, which I add to the menu. Mm-hmm. It is a learning experience because as fast as you go, ideas came in, inspiration, people request certain things, mm-hmm. and there's some things they do and some things they just stay away from doing because, like, for instance, a lot of people ask for roti. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's uh, the things you get in the Caribbean. Trinidad is yeah, one Trinidad. of the popular places to do it. I was
1: it. literally going to say, are you going to do doubles? Because like,
4: <laughs> please do doubles. Yeah. That's a lot of work, you know, and then I, know. I don't have much experience in it so kind of stay away from it mm-hmm. until I get someone who can do it. I can hire them and have them make it for us.
0: Tell me what the experience has been like. I'm sure Caribbean people hear that you're here and they come in because they want a taste of home. Has that happened? Well, a lot.
4: Of, there's not a lot of the Caribbean people around this area. Yeah. So they're kind of limited. So more the American people, they have to introduce it to them. Mm-hmm. For instance, I do the jerk chicken meal. I have to turn down the heat on it because uh-huh. if I'm going to put it up you know, high, uh-huh. <laughs> they would enjoy it. So I put it way by they can enjoy it and some people ask for it yeah. so I can. For both.
0: Yeah, is there a secret code word that we need to use if we want it the way you would eat it as opposed to the way other people that might not be as used to spicy food need it? It's just simple, hot. <laughs> <laughs> Some like it hot.
1: <laughs> I like it hot. Yeah,
0: spicy. Me too, yeah, we liked it. We were dumping the hot sauce all over there.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I know. There's so many things, Korean foods, I want to ask about. Like, are you going to do this? Are you going to do this? like, do they do haki? Do they do saltfish? Like, all of this stuff that I had while I was doing my internship in Jamaica that I love and always want to encounter, but the places around me, like, there's a lot of Jamaican restaurants near where I am, but they all close early.
4: Yeah, in this area, we close a bit early too, but we're trying to revive North Street. That's why Mm. I'm here, so we can make, you know north street more vibrant more active bring more people for food music entertainment and build it you know so i got a grant which helped me to move from
0: columbus to here mm-hmm. so that's why i'm here to see if we can make that's it happen
4: it yeah. yeah
0: it's the newest hotspot in pittsfield bb's hotspot on north street in downtown
1: you're still doing the food truck and catering and this yes. has it been hard to balance all
4: of that no as i say it's a learning experience and more you manage is more Revenue you're bringing. Another thing is based on the space. on The kitchen space at this location is a bit uh, small, so there's not much I can do compared to the catering spot in Columbus. So I have to kind of balance it out as to manage my menu because you don't want to put too many things on the menu and then you cannot...
0: Deliver good mm. service, and yes. I rather do good service. So I got the oxtail and the coconut rice and red beans and collard greens. You got curry goat. And then we split it. And Tony, you got curry chicken. If people haven't had Caribbean food, haven't had your food truck food, Ronnie, what would be like, come and try this first?
4: Ah, the jerk chicken. You know, get some spice in your life. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, Well, speaking of that, the one thing that really struck me the first time I had Ronnie's food is his homemade ginger beer. I love ginger beer. I'll I'll drink the canned stuff. That's fine and dandy, but there is nothing like homemade ginger beer and Ronnie's in particular. So I have to ask Ronnie, what's more popular here, the ginger beer or the, uh, the sorrel? Well, the ginger beer... It kind of balance out. But when you mix it, give you a nice blend. So I would say just mix it up. Yeah.
1: You have to come up with a name for it, yeah. like Arnold Palmer. Yeah, He's like, like Lava,
0: Lava. can't take Laura Palmer. That one's already taken.
1: No. Oh, jeez. There's, there's
0: a cocktail called the Laura Palmer. I don't
1: know if anybody should. Did you wake up in a ditch somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> like-
0: Wrapped in plastic.
4: Just gonna a spammer. I and like there, that. When does the food truck go back on the road? Well, let's say like May, June. Mm-hmm.
0: I have bookings for that. You said you got a grant to help encourage you to open this spot to take over the Lantern, which was an iconic restaurant in downtown Pittsfield. Tell us about where that grant came from and who's working to try to rejuvenate this part of Pittsfield. It's from the Black
4: Business Economic Council. Mm-hmm. We had
0: on the show a couple weeks yes, ago. We uh, and then, um,
4: uh, that's in order to revive North Street. So that's what it's all about. And that was real. was
0: that really the driving force for trying to take this risk to do it?
4: Well, that's right, because you know, it's more exposure on North Street, you know, compared to where I have the location. Then I said, if I can get more business there, then keep the other spot for more catering and for the food truck, just to clean and make sure prep yeah, that's, awesome. that's why. Yeah.
1: Had you always wanted to move it into no, brick and really mortar? I
4: to move, you know, I was kind of <laughs> nervous about it, but after when I kind of think about it, you know, and they encouraged me, the Black Business Development Council, and I spoke to my wife about it, and she said, Give it a shot, it's up to me. So I decided, you know what, it's better you try and fail than you fail to try.
3: Yeah. I love it.
4: And this spot, the lantern, I mean, this is like a, a Pittsfield legend. It's been a long time, I can't remember how many years, but years and years and years, that this place has been here. And you're moving into the next generation, aren't you? Yeah. That's right, you know. And I'm not scared, you know, so I just have to bring it up and start and then things happen. That's how I started because after losing my job, I tried and I realized, oh, people love what you do. So why not continue and move forward? And then you create employment for the people in the area, although that is something tough to kind of educate people on the menu on the Caribbean ways. and. You know, the quality and the standard I'm looking for, I want to set the bar high so people can come have a good experience based on the fundamental of food and beverage, based on the quality and the service, you know. So I just want us to have a good, people come and have a good time at BB's Hotspot.
1: What's become your favorite thing about being in this area?
4: Being in this area, what I like about it, it reminds me of home based on the landscape of it. Because I started in Brooklyn, I spent two months there, and then I moved and started to work at the Red Lion Inn. And when I see it just remind me of home. The housing, how it is, you know, it's not all crunched together. It's a part, f- I love that. Nice.
0: I know that you came to work at the Red Lion Inn in Pittsfield. How have you weathered these winters as somebody who probably didn't grow up with winters like this?
4: Well, it was an experience, just the first time seeing snow, that was great. And then uh, from there, You know you adjust yourself for the weather because you got to work you got to make money you can't sit back i can't depend on getting money just from the government you gotta get up and get you know that's what i do (laughs) do you feel tempted to go back not really it's fun to go back but there's more opportunity here my family's here so
0: you know home is where your family and your heart is. And sometimes your family caters the birth of a new family <laughs> or another Berkshire family getting them addicted to jerk chicken early. Yeah. <laughs> Ronnie Brazan from the brand new BB's Hotspot in Pittsfield.
1: And now it's time to delve into the murky and ever changing waters of American English with Amherst College professor Elon Stavins. We'll be moderating the Point Counterpoint speaker series on that campus starting this Friday.
0: You're listening to the Fabulous 413 on 885 NEPM. The fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte.
1: And I'm Glee Smith. Point Counterpoint is a speaker series that is designed to take a look at how language, politics, and culture intersect by defining a healthy democracy through a prism of language. It seeks to bring reason, logic, and empathy to hard conversations in an attempt to peer
0: outside the echo chambers we may reside within. Over the course of the next eight weeks, the campus will welcome five prominent authors in varying disciplines to speak and ask questions about the evolution of our language. One of the remaining threads binding Americans to each other and to their past is the English language, but how did English become American?
1: With us as the moderator for each of these conversations, Ilan Stavans, the publisher of Restless Books and the Lewis Sebring Professor of Humanities and Latin American and Latino Culture at Amherst College. His books include On Borrowed Words, Spanglish, Dictionary Days, The Disappearance, and A Critic's Journey. He has edited the Norton Anthology of Latino Literature, the three-volume set Isaac Bashevis Singer, Collected Stories, the Poetry of Pablo Neruda,
0: among dozens of other Volumes. He is the recipient of numerous awards and honors, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, Chile's Presidential Medal, the International Latino Book Award, and the Jewish Book Award. Staban's work, translated into 20 languages, has been adapted to the stage and screen. He even had a podcast here through NEPM called In Contrast, <laughs> which you can still listen to. A co-founder of the Great Book Summer Program and in this series of public conversations, hopes to reflect on the changing nature of our tongue, the people's tongue. Welcome, Elon Stabanz. Welcome back, I should say.
3: It's such a pleasure to be with both of you in English.
1: Yes. (laughs) We could do part of it in Spanish, but it would probably be very short. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) With very limited
0: vocabulary. Yeah, we would do a pretty good job understanding what you were saying, and then uh, at least I would have a hard time responding in any reasonable time frame. So we'll spare the listeners that experience. But this point CounterPoints series that you are hosting, which begins this week, uh, looks fascinating. Maybe the best place to begin would be a rundown of uh, the speakers. So our first speaker this Friday is whom?
3: This Friday at 4 p.m. at Stern Auditorium, we will be in conversation, I will be in conversation with linguist and New York Times opinion columnist, John McWhorter, a, a very sharp mind, very courageous, who writes frequently in the New York Times and in other publications about a Black English, about woke culture. Uh, He has a conservative viewpoint. He is uh, a a really exquisite writer uh, that develops arguments in in unique ways. And I'm very much much looking forward to this dialogue. Uh, His opinions can sometimes be polarizing, uh, but they are always interesting. And I am hoping that students Uh, faculty, staff, and the public at large will engage him just as he will engage everybody in a conversation of how our language changes and the role of minorities in it. Mm.
0: Mm. I'm a fan of his Nine Nasty Words book because that's just the kind of level of intellect that I'm at at all (laughs) times. What is the reaction, Ben, bringing this um, conservative mind to this conversation? Have there been any pushback from uh, your colleagues or from the folks at Amherst College at all?
3: <laughs> no, on the contrary, Monty. The, the series itself, Point Counterpoint, is designed to bring people of different ideological viewpoints to campus. The hope is that uh, these uh, small liberal arts colleges will no longer or at least attempt not to be bubbles isolated from the real worlds, from the America we all live in. And I think it's very important to listen, particularly to students, to listen to those that think differently from the way the students do. Um, We tend to shelter them. They tend to shelter themselves. And uh, that exposure to other bright, sharp, but sometimes polarizing thinkers, I think, should be as much part of an education as any other aspect of it.
1: Was that at the core of the start of the series? Because this is not the first year. This is like the sixth or seventh year of this speaker series.
3: Yeah, this is exactly true. Uh, This probably is like the fifth or sixth. I have lost count. (laughs) I have myself uh, uh, been the curator or the host of the uh, three or four i have lost count on that one <laughs> on that aspect as well And uh, my colleagues my wonderful colleagues uh, different uh, persons have also done that job uh, yes the, the goal started the attempt started uh, in 2016. it was um, an initiative that actually at least came from the alums uh, to encourage us after that very traumatic life-changing election that uh, we all felt uh, had uh, shaken the earth underneath of our feet that the goal would be to better understand what is happening in the country you know quarters you know walks of life and so it, it the, the purpose is to bring uh, people from different political viewpoints and i guess uh, that is why it can be controversial on, on one or two occasions we have needed to have the police at this event wow. just to make cool. sure that uh, nothing happens but fortunately they have been very civil and uh, very polite if also uh, very challenging intellectually
0: we're speaking with Elon Stabans, who is the host and moderator and curator of the People of the Point Counterpoint series the People's Tongue which will begin this Friday at the Stern Auditorium at Amherst College with John McHorter, who is a linguist and a New York Times opinion columnist the series will continue later in March on Thursday March 28th uh, at the Stern Auditorium and also streamed online if you can't make it with uh, someone who has a a direct connection to our regular Wednesday guest. Who is your uh, second guest in the speaker series?
3: The second guest of the series this year will be John Morse, uh, who is uh, the former president and publisher of Merriam-Webster. And uh, I am always thrilled to have the offices of that very distinguished dictionary just no, I mean, just next door to you yeah. <laughs> in Springfield, the veteran 19th century Noah Webster went commercial by selling <laughs> this to uh, to the brothers, the Merriam brothers. And, uh, you know, dictionaries often die because they don't get new editions. And what the Merriam brothers did was promise that there would always be new words coming in. And uh, the staff uh, in Springfield does a superb job and Uh, john morse who was at the helm of this a major ship a cultural ship in american culture will be with us discussing what makes it in and what doesn't in Mm. in a dictionary Uh, what is the process of selecting words and does a dictionary have any political viewpoint is there somebody behind telling us don't use these words because they are dangerous and you might fall into the abyss and never never seen again or never spoken to again i hope
1: hope you also get to talk to him about the shift of language to digital context because that movement happened with him also that that happened under his purview
3: Yeah, this is crucial, because dictionaries indeed survive these days because they are online and words used to take months, if not years to, from the moment they appear on the street, to make it be included in a dictionary. And uh, I was told by one of the staffers of the Merriam-Webster that the word that has moved from street to pages the fastest in the history of the Merriam-Webster dictionary is Mm COVID-19. Literally showed up in, I don't know, end of January of 2020, and by the second week of February it was already there with a definition and being uh, looked at and looked for and challenged. Because one of the things that we always do when we look for words in the dictionary is we say, Really, this is the way you define a word? You you kind of uh, have your own definition, your own mental uh, platonic dictionary competing with the real one.
0: We're speaking with Elon Stabans, who will be hosting the Point Counterpoint series beginning this Friday at Amherst College. We'll talk about the next three speakers in the series uh, coming up after the break, including one who is a super famous author uh, that will be the first April speaker in the Point Counterpoint series.
1: You're listening to the Fabulous 413 on 885
0: NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous Four One Three. We're speaking with Elon Stabans, Amherst College professor and the host and curator of Point Counterpoint series, The People's Tongue, which begins this Friday, March first, at the Stern Auditorium and online with John McWhorter, who is the linguist and New York Times opinion columnist. But if we fast forward to Thursday, April fourth, of a very famous name whose uh, use of the English language may have contributed to some of the conspiracy theories that surround so many things that, uh, in the minds of folks who's the speaker that you will be focusing on on Thursday April 4th Elon it
3: is it is known other than Dan Brown the <laughs> author of the Da Vinci Code and I plan to ask him exactly that how those <laughs> language contribute to conspiracy theories that are so widespread these days <laughs> yeah
0: it's an interesting choice he's also an Amherst College alum as well right yep
3: he is. Yes. Yeah. I think we did either something very well or totally disastrous, but he is an alum.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I admit that I've never read or seen the movies of that, but I do every time think about the Constitution, whether there is like something hidden underneath it or secret. So that'll be a very interesting conversation, I'm sure. Um, you also have um, a poet and translator who is coming uh, later in April on Thursday, April 18th, whose uh, history I think will connect to a lot of things that are going on. Politically, right now,
3: absolutely. The the terrific poet Ilya Kaminsky, who is Ukrainian American and activist, and he is uh, hearing impaired and makes that topic, uh, having suffered in childhood. Uh, a devastating disease that uh, affected his hearing uh, uses this element into and as part of his poetry. So the political side and the physical uh, existential side will be central to the discussion of how does one uh, project one's message in, in a language that is not one's own when one understands that language filtered through the disability that he has in this case hearing.
0: And the last speaker.
1: I'm so psyched about this one.
0: (laughs) Yeah. My wife just read uh, one of her books and absolutely loved it. And she has very uh, local connections as well, right across the river from Amherst College. Who's the final speaker in the Point Counterpoint series?
3: The last one is Ruth Oseki, the terrific writer and filmmaker and Zen Buddhist priest who teaches at Smith College and is a superb novelist who explores the immigrant and the Japanese American experience in unique and delightful novels. Um, She will be talking about silence uh, as an uh, intrinsic part of our language.
1: There's a question that you ask on the the main page for this event and all of its speakers, which you can see at, at amherstcollege.edu. Um, is there a responsibility in having an imperial language used all over the globe? I'm really curious how you intend to ask this question to these five authors.
3: I, th- I think it's the question, Kalis, that really motivates the curating, the hosting of this year. Uh, for there are, it is not the, English is not the language of the most it, native speakers in the world but is the language with the most speakers and for every one native speaker there are four non-native mostly tourist speakers that use the language. Is that Does that mean that we have more of a responsibility on it, uh, those that are native or those that are non-native? And what happens with a language that spreads all over? How does it destroy other languages? Should it have a conscience for the languages that are disappearing in this vast conspiracy effort of taking over the world so that everybody speaks? like our presidential candidates
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow does that count as english i guess it does <laughs> yeah,
3: like, unfortunately
1: what happens to your language when it becomes the rosetta stone right yeah
0: exactly dan yes. brown writes about it i think in his books and then we that's
1: and, the, that's oh
0: yeah uh Elon Stabans, what i think is fascinating and uh, is about this series in the few minutes that we have left is e- english does unite us as u.s americans in this vastly Ca- you know a, a, a canyon of divide politically speaking I in, thought you were gonna in, say catastrophic <laughs> well it could <laughs> lead to that so uh, you know are we speaking are our conservatives and liberals with you have got John McWhorter talking about as a black man writing against woke culture yeah. uh, uh, is there a, a, a canyon between us politically with the English language or does the English language still in some ways unite us
3: I think that that is really the the core Monty I my hopeful side says we have the same language we have different vocabularies mm. and we can still understand each other but if you travel the country uh, uh, liberals and conservatives use different words for to describe the very same phenomena. Uh, Young people use very different lexicon than uh, adults. And that has always been the case, but in a polarized moment like the one we're in, sometimes it feels that we are not really, not only listening to one another, but using the same language. And the key question is, can democracy survive when a language is, is pulled so hard that it can almost break Uh, There are countries in the world where the battles for language, Canada, Spain, the battles for the the language can really push people over the edge. And I think it's very important at the very least that we pay attention at how others are using the language that we, ourselves, employ all the time and we accept those differences and recognize them.
1: Almost like looking at history and maybe learning our lessons from the people who came before. I've heard about that. (laughs) Yes,
3: <laughs> just that, yes, and, and because we will be the ones that are depositing these words in the next generation, and they will be looking back at us in the same way.
0: Do you see the public discourse, the political discourse, especially from the highest office, especially from someone seeking the highest office again, who does not necessarily have the most articulate use of yes. the English language as a degradation? Or is this a natural progression of the English language that we all are just going to have to accept?
3: I think it's a degradation. I think, Monty, that uh, it's important to remember to remind people that the very first crop of presidents of this country spoke two, three, four different languages. Ancient Hebrew, Latin, Greek, German. Most of our recent presidents are monolingual and most you know, describing them as monolingual might be already a form of a celebration that is inaccurate. Uh, Certainly the division between the two presidential candidates or what looks like the two presidential candidates is dramatic just at the level of language, how they use the language, the varieties of vocabulary because of their age and because sometimes of the abuse that they make with certain words or certain uh, uh, modifications of words just to demean others next to them. I think it's very important to remember in this year of, uh, of where we have a presidential election that it is the language also that is a referendum.
0: Ilan mm-hmm. Stabans, who is the curator and host of Point counterpoint series at Amherst College, which will begin this Friday. Mm-hmm. We should mention, of course, It is an underwriter of (laughs) NEPM. We're happy to have you. And that's not why we had you on, but we love having you on whenever.
3: I always love coming to you. Thank you.
0: Tomorrow on The Fabulous 413, we head to Williamstown to check out a brand new exhibit that takes a look at the idea of freedom. The exhibit is Emancipation at the Williams College Museum of Art. We'll see you tomorrow on The Fabulous 413.